populism posits an opposition between an establishment and the people. It's not so much a political ideology as the opening stage to a, to a political policy or position. And Trump, you know, embodies that. There wasn't a lot of, of ideological content there. Whereas Bannon, he stands out as being someone who is distinctly intellectual um, and, and curious. He thought Trump's role in history was to be a destroyer. Trump was meant to come into the United States federal government and just destroy things, tear things apart. And, and by doing that, he'd make space for creation. Trump didn't like that. Trump, Trump saw himself as a creator. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Benjamin Teitelbaum. Benjamin, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Brendan. So, Ben, there's a lot I want to ask you about, particularly, of course, in relation to the populist right, uh, the far right, as some people refer to it, these uh, right-wing, broadly nationalist movements that have been gaining in stature and power in the US and in Europe over the past few years. Uh, You've written extensively about the populist right, particularly in your book, War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right. And I really wanted to dig down with you into some of the ideas behind this movement and the fortunes of these various movements, whether they can sustain themselves, where things might go next, and all those kinds of things. Um, I thought it might be good to start with America. You are based in the US. You have written a lot about a person called Steve Bannon, who listeners will be familiar with, the former chief strategist to Donald Trump. He features a lot in your book, War for Eternity. Um, And it seems to me that Trumpism and Bannonism, if if such a thing exists, uh, have uh, become slightly unstuck over the past few months. We've just had the midterms, the much predicted red wave turned out to be more of a red trickle. It seems that Trump's intervention didn't help his uh, chosen candidates as much as he thought it might. And of course, we have the Bannon situation where he's been sentenced to four months in prison, which has been suspended while he appeals because he was found guilty of contempt of Congress for failing to adhere to a subpoena to speak at the um, 6th of January inquiry. So it does seem as though Trumpism is not going particularly well. And maybe that this movement that's been around for the past seven years or so is finally coming to an end. Is that how you see it? Or is it a bit more complicated than that? I, I think it's a bit more complicated. I'm, I'm not quite willing to go out and, and offer, say, a prediction about the future of Trumpism or Bannonism. The, the difficulty is this, this is the crux of it all, that a motivated minority can accomplish a lot in American politics. I'm reading the same tea leaves, I think, that you are, Brennan, and, and seeing that Trump's brand is no longer, um, seems, seems to quite have the inevitability that it once did, and nor, nor the broad appeal that it does. But one thing we did see from this, uh, from this last election was how regionally powerful it can be. Broadly, any sort of uh, what we call a purple territory in, in, in U.S. politics, something that, you know, there's a, a region, a city that, that has a larger share of independence, of more moderate voters... Um, I think they're pretty clear signs that, that, that Trump is poison. But you get to other places. You get to Ohio. You, you're in Florida. Um, you know, parts of Wisconsin, um, Iowa, I think. I, his brand is still, is still powerful. And the question is, is what are the impacts of that going to be? Within a Republican primary, let's say a, a, a campaign and a vote for who will face the Democratic nominee in 2024, mm. 
someone who has rock solid command over 30% of the vote can win. And so depending on who is who is running, um, that that might be enough to get Trump back in contention for the for the presidency. Um, where things go after that, I'm, I'm not sure the Democrats have have a knack for making a contest out of something that shouldn't be. I mean, Hillary Clinton was the perfect candidate for someone like Trump to tear to pieces. And Biden was almost the perfect candidate. Um, and Kamala Harris might might also be be a, a perfect foil for for his message again to resonate with enough people in enough places to to have a future. I want to ask you about what Trumpism broadly represented, because the way I always understood it is that Trump was seen by many voters as a bit of an instrument for the pursuit of something that they were interested in pursuing, which was to push back against the old political establishment, to make their voices heard, to find a way into political life that had been denied to them by the rise of technocracy, the rise of a new managerial class that wasn't particularly interested in what working people thought or what working people wanted. And I think some voters for Trump obviously liked him enormously, and those people are still around. He has lots of committed fans. I think other voters for Trump, not only in 2016, but also in 2020, when he got a huge number of uh, votes, I think they recognized that he was a bit of a crude instrument, a bit of a blunt instrument, but they thought that they might be able to use him to um, give the establishment a bit of a beating, (laughs) for want of a better phrase. Is that how you see it as well? Because I think a lot of the mainstream commentary tends to focus on this strange allure of Trump and the way the way his demagogic tactics were able to win over what some commentators view as the stupid voters in redneck America. They have this quite patronizing view of the deplorables who they see as easily uh, led astray by someone like Trump. But it wasn't just about Trump, was it? Behind Trumpism, there was a, a populist urge that was looking for some kind of outlet and Trump happened to be it. Yes, yes, I would agree. I, I don't want to just settle into consensus with you here, Brennan, but that, that's that's an excellent understanding of this. If I can go back to the beginning of what you said, you know, what is, what is Trumpism? You could call it sheerly that act of protest, mm. populist protest, a, a, a section of society that understands itself as being not only politically but also socially and culturally excluded. Um, from mainstream conversations and also from visions of the future, you know, that, that sees itself correctly in some cases as, as serving just as, you know, the pinata that progress needs to burst to get through on its way. Um, and that the tides of history are going to wash over them. And, and that's really the role that they play in the mainstream society's vision for the future. And they saw Trump as a crude, effective, enraging, instrument to wield against that against that narrative what what's missing from all that of course is is an endorsement necessarily or or attachment to the specifics of what trump is saying kellyanne conway who was a a spokesperson for the trump campaign in 2016 she did have a quote that i think even her detractors were forced to admit had a lot of wisdom to it and that was that trump's voters took him seriously but not literally and thus that where whereas a lot of the commentator class would would make a big deal about x phrase that Trump did x thing that his his voters and his supporters were not basing their support on 
every word that he spoke on every policy proposal and every 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 move he made instead they they liked his style they liked the effect that he seemed to have on the political system and and i think if 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 we were to distinguish let's say trumpism from bannonism mm-hmm. we are talking about in 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 the former case trumpism more about those stylistics more about the big picture structural issues of let's throw Let's throw a Molotov cocktail into the political system. Whatever comes out of it is going to be better. When you turn to some of the ideologues next to Trump, then we're talking about Bannon. Then we're talking about this um, more protectionist vision, a slightly more left-leaning economic uh, program combined with cultural conservatism, which is something that you have more of in Europe, but we we don't we tend to not have in the United States. That's um, that's something separate. And and by the way, I think both of those things have a future, but perhaps with different people. We've mentioned Bannon a few times. I want to ask you a little bit about Steve Bannon. You know him, you've met him, you've had conversations with him, including for your book, War for Eternity. You've written about him a lot and in a way that I think is far more interesting than I've read in many other outlets and many other books. And I want to ask you a few things about Bannon because he is obviously a very interesting and important character in relation to American populism over the past few few years. The first thing I want to ask you is you mentioned there that there's a difference between Trumpism and Bannonism. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about how those two things were different. Obviously, friction emerged between these two characters. They fell out. Um, Bannon left the administration. Uh, there was clear tension. And that really contradicted a lot of what we'd heard about Bannon from the mainstream media, which is that he was the puppet master of the Trump administration. He was running everything behind the show. He was this extraordinarily powerful Machiavellian figure who was basically feeding Trump lines and running America, essentially, is really how it was presented in newspapers like The Guardian, sometimes in The New York Times. Um, What was the real relationship between those two? You say there that Trumpism and Bannonism were different. How were they different? And and why did the relationship work, at least for a period of time? I I think it worked for a period of time, partially because of the differences uh, in the two, because one was trafficking more in style and structure and and theatrics, whereas whereas the other was interested in ideology um, and had grand plans. Um, so it's not so much of the one taking precedence over the other than than the two occupying different areas of political life. Mm-hmm. Again, with with Trumpism, one one thing that scholars, good scholars, I think, um, of the radical right of the populist right, will say um, is that populism's signature is in many cases its its emptiness or its openness, depending on how you want to frame it. That um, populism posits an opposition between an establishment and the people, but there's very little else that we can say beyond that. It's not so much a political ideology or position as what would we call it, uh, the opening stage to a, to a political policy or position. Uh, and Trump in, it brings the, you know, embodies that in, in rare ways. I think that there wasn't a lot of, of ideological content there. The same thing could be said of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, for example. Um, there, there was much more attitude. Um, whereas, whereas Bannon, a lot of people also said that he was a phony and that that he really didn't have any ideas, and that his his ideological content was just Bannon, and that's there too. But he also was one of the best read people I've ever come across in my life, and I've spent most of my adult life in in rather refined, lettered academic circles. Um, he he stands out as being someone who's who's distinctly intellectual. 
um, and, and curious. So I think those two were, were able to to coexist in, in that way by staying away from each other. And Bannon even once told me, uh, when we were speaking about his relationship with Trump, he once told me that he had all these understandings of the meaning and the significance of Trump to history, but he decided it wasn't even important for Trump himself to know that. They one time had a conversation where they start, where Bannon started to share his understanding of what, what Trump's role needed to be. Um, for the United States, for the world at this particular moment. And Trump was kind of turned off by it. And Bannon said, you know what? Ah, I'll leave it. You you go ahead and you think whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You're the actor. You're the muscle. I'm the brain. The thing is, they're, they're both huge egotists. They're both, uh, they both suck up all the air in the room where they are. Uh, no one, neither of them wants to, to play second fiddle to anyone. Trump was reportedly very upset by all those media and popular cultural characterizations of himself as the idiot tool and Bannon as the mind behind him. Um, and, and that as much as anything else could have, could have been fatal in, in in an environment that's guided by these, by these major egos. But down the road also, one thing that slowly crept out more to Trump's children than Trump himself to Jared Kushner his son-in-law, uh, was just how radical Bannon was mm. and how off app for mainstream American political conservatism even Bannon happened to be. Uh, and that, that created anxiety from, from, from multiple directions that led to Bannon's early exit from the White House. So let's talk a little bit about Bannon's radicalism because um, I had this instinct over the past few years to be pretty skeptical when I read pieces saying that Bannon was this lunatic, crazy ideas, um, fiercely intelligent, but very eccentric and in control of the White House. I was generally fairly skeptical of that. But when I read some of the stuff that you've written on Bannon, I did start thinking, okay, maybe he is nuts. <laughs> and it, not because that's what you said. Uh, you give a, a, a very rounded account of this interesting political operator. Uh, but his philosophy does seem to be quite strange. It seems to come from different strands of uh, historical thought, uh, some of which are a bit odd, some of which are a bit extreme. And so I wanted to ask you, how would you explain the Bannon philosophy. Now, what's interesting about your book, War for Eternity, is that the subtitle is The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right. Many people who see that subtitle would think, oh, traditionalism, that means conservatism, that means liking tradition and, and wanting to be a little bit old-fashioned. But that's not really what the philosophy of traditionalism is about, is it? No, no. And it's very unhelpful that that we don't have a more exotic-sounding name for this uh, for this philosophy of traditionalism, you could take if take your your archetypal reader that you're referring to there who sees traditionalism and thinks conservatism. Probably what ideas they have in their mind, you could start with just put them on ecstasy, is what I say. <laughs> just carry them in absolute overdrive, exaggerate them to an extent that they're almost unrecognizable to you, and you probably will will enter this territory. So traditionalism emerges out of French Orientalist philosophical circles at the turn of the turn of the 20th century. And um, it rejects modernity, progress, liberalism, attempts to reject them in all ways possible, aspires to be the the ultimate antithesis of, of modernity, um, rejects the idea of linear time. And, and with that, uh, progress and the belief that we might meaningfully make a better society in the future than one that has existed in the past. 
In the place of that, they borrow this idea from, uh, for most people, it's going to come from Hinduism, uh, the idea of cyclic time, that we're constantly moving uh, through a, a sequence of ages, and crucially, that, that that movement is always in a downward fashion. We're always going from a golden age to a silver age to a bronze age to a dark age. And at one little moment of cataclysm um, and in tandem with, with some destruction, you find yourself reset in a golden age and thereafter decline begins. So it's conservative in the sense, uh, if, if you can picture that in your head, picture a cycle um, in your head, it's conservative in the sense that it, it is skeptical um, toward progress and believes that as time is moving forward, things are generally getting worse. It's revolutionary radical in the sense that it says, well, bring on that decay and that destruction because that will eventually push us to a dark age, um, which will be attended by destruction, cataclysm, and that will push us back into a golden age. So here, just just in what I've told you there, that should hopefully give your, your listeners some introduction and, into, into how this can, yes, sound like conservatism, but also has some elements in it that, that are far different from you know, something that would make Margaret Thatcher blush if she, if she came across it, right? So with Bannon, I mean, a couple of questions in relation to, to what you've just said, which is a very good outline of, of the traditionalism philosophy. So it's right to say that Bannon is an, an anti-enlightenment figure. Yeah. And to what extent do you think that his run-ins with Trump and his eventual falling out with Trump was Trump recognizing this problem? I'm not saying Trump is an enlightened figure. He's not. He's hardly a, a modern day enlightenment philosopher himself. But is there an element where others in the Trump administration, including possibly Trump him, himself, recognized a darkness in the Bannon worldview, and as you've said there, a, an instinct for destruction in order that a new world might be created out of it. Was there just a, a sense that this was too bleak, too black, too dark, not something that they were interested in having around the White House? Possibly in a more casual sense for Trump. Because there, there are two instances when you ask about when this this might have actually bubbled up um, and been been apparent to people in the, in the White House. There, there are two moments. The one with Trump, uh, as I say, was more casual. It was a conversation when when Bannon let slip to Trump the idea that he thought Trump's role in history was to be a destroyer. Trump was meant to come into the United States federal government, into the, whatever sort of global capitalist system we want to talk about existing, into the UN, and just destroy things tear things apart. And, and by doing that, he'd make space for creation. Trump didn't like that. Trump, Trump saw himself as a creator. And that was the crux of their little discussion. There was no talk about time cycles or traditionalism or Hinduism or anything, of course. Um, but it's just at that very, very distilled level, there was a clash. The more fundamental um, conflict came during the crisis with Syria, um, 2017, when, um, when Trump was wanting to uh, sent missiles into Syria in response for for an alleged chemical attack um, that that claimed the lives of children. And Ivanka and Jared were pushing for some sort of intervention. They had a conversation with Bannon about it. Bannon's words to Jared uh, were apparently that, yeah, this is there's destruction and horrible things going on in Syria, but don't you know we're actually living during an age of destruction right now? This is a dark age when there's going to be a lot of death and there's nothing you can do about it which was a little cosmic, a little beyond the world of realpolitik. 
um, to hear someone with powers and, and who, by the way, had a seat on the National Security Council um, for a period of time, which is a very, very influential post to have um, in the executive branch in the United States. To have someone like that saying, yeah, death and destruction is, is, is our fate right now. Um, you know, how do you know that? Well, Bannon could give him a, give him a, a history lesson or some comparative religion to justify that. That would have not helped, of course, but just that, just that exposure right there, let them know, okay, this is someone quite different. Yeah. One more thing on, on Bannon. Uh, you mentioned the word there, cosmic, and um, your book, War for Eternity, captures that kind of cosmic nature that's uh, not only Bannon, but um, other figures too, Alexander Dugin, who I want to ask you about shortly as well, uh, in Russia, of course. Um, th- this kind of cosmic end of the current world, potentially a new world being born, this a uh, very uh, dark and cosmic view that some of these traditionalist philosophers and traditionalist populists, I suppose, have. Uh, and wouldn't that bring someone like Bannon directly into conflict or at least tension, whether it was spoken conflict or unspoken conflict, with ordinary Americans who were experimenting with populism? Because for many of those voters, this was not a cosmic battle. It may have been a very urgent battle, one through which they wanted to assert their democratic rights, assert their right to be taken seriously, their right to earn a good living, their right to be treated with respect, their right to have their um, culture and their values taken seriously rather than uh, uh, driven into the dust by politicians who accused them of clinging to their guns and their Bibles or said that they were uh, in a basket of deplorables or said that they were semi-fascists, which, which was the phrase that Joe Biden recently used. It was a very tangible democratic assertion of themselves and their communities. Mm-hmm. And that runs counter, doesn't it, to what Bannon seems to think he could have brought forward uh, through populism, which was his more cosmic sense that we needed to destroy the uh, current world in order to create a new one. Yes, although... There's more to Bannon. Of course, I've you know I've only been able to give a, a very a very brief overview of his thinking here too. He does have a philosophy. It's it's not written down. It's not consistent. Um, but it is a way to try and reconcile both that that kind of folk populism, focusing on that particular demographic in the United States. You're talking about the the rural working class, primarily white. Um, that is not not that interesting and. In, to not that compelling to to mainstream politics and, and society and culture, he has a way of kind of reconciling some solidarity with that particular group of people and this this notion of cataclysm. Um, he doesn't bring it out though. One of the features of one of the consequences rather of populism being a sort of anti movement, an anti establishment movement, is is again its openness that it can encompass a wide range of of people, ideologies, identities, agendas. And it, it, that's somewhat paradoxical because I think if you spoke to most commentators and said, okay, a populist in Britain, a populist in the United States, you think some post-industrial rural worker left behind, someone not part of the laptop class, right? And, and yet, because it is so, so open, an, again, an anti-movement that doesn't, doesn't necessarily prescribe in, in detail what it wants to pursue, what it wants to replace the establishment with, that makes space for for quite a bit of quite a bit of variation, and that's I think where, where Bannon's ideas 
come in here. For him, however, it, it's not just you asked me earlier, Brandon. Like, how do I how do I define him? And I I speak to and focus on his traditionalism in my book, um, and and that's partially because of his background, partially because it had such staying power in his life. He's he's moved through a lot of different. Um, positions personally, socially throughout his life, but he's always been interested in this territory of alternative spirituality. It's also because he was networking with other figures, Alexander Dugan among them, on the basis of his traditionalism, which is not something someone does with just dilettantish interest. It's an important part of who he is. He also somewhat, again, paradoxically, daringly, if you wanted to, to put a positive spin on it, tries to combine traditionalism which has a lot of elitist elements to it, I could add, and we could get into, with this populism, with what he sees as a necessary move to regain an American spirit that is pre-enlightenment, that is pre-constitutional, pre-revolutionary war, um, and, and also carried in his mind, incubated more so with the rural working class, white working class, than, than with other demographic groups in the United States, especially the coastal coastal elites, as he would put it. Um, so he's doing those those things. He's trying to bring together multiple traditions. It doesn't always work. No one should get that excited about that. We all um, we all try and force ideas together that that don't always agree. But that's that's what's going on in his world. It is slightly more complex than to simply say he's just a doctrinaire traditionalist. Have you signed up to become a Spike supporter yet? Spike supporters is our thriving donor community. Supporters can get access to a host of perks And I have an extra special one to tell you about. On Monday, the 19th of December at 7pm, we have the brilliant Toby Young joining me for a special live recording of this podcast. And it is exclusive to Spiked supporters. Toby and I will be digging down into cancel culture, free speech and much more. You'll be able to watch the recording online. Plus, we'll also be taking questions from the audience. So if you're already a Spike supporter, you can register for the live podcast now in the Spike Supporters Hub. If you're not a Spike supporter, you can sign up for as little as £5 a month by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Sign up today and claim your ticket for the live podcast on Monday the 19th. See you there. Okay, so let's move on to someone you've mentioned there and someone with whom Bannon has had connections, who is Alexander Dugin, the Russian philosopher, much misunderstood, I think, or misexplained in some of the commentary that has been written about him over the past couple of years in particular, since the start of uh, the, the the war in Ukraine this year. Um He's called all sorts of things. He's referred to as a modern-day Rasputin. He's referred to as Putin's brain, maybe even Putin's soul. The you know, the, the whisperer to the Putin regime, giving it a sense of uh, purpose, and that's how he's often presented in in the Western media. You have a rather different take on Dugin, in, including of his relationship with Putin. You you've pointed out, I think, that he doesn't actually have a pretty a very clear connection with Putin. He won't have had a, a huge number of meetings with him. He won't have been particularly influential on him. So is there any kind of relationship between Vladimir Putin and this Russian philosopher, Alexander Dugin? And if so, what is it about? What what is driving Duganism in, in modern Russia, do you think? It's 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 a it's a very challenging question in part because the target is moving right now as we speak. Mm. Historically 
there has been an absolute minimal relationship. Um, we know, and this is coming from from Financial Times reporter Charles Clover, that the the two have met and had met, let's say, prior to uh, prior to the war. Um, and and Dugan uh, has, despite that, has never served as like Putin's brain. We the 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 archetype we're trying to put him in is is Rasputin to think that he's sitting there whispering uh, whispering secrets into Putin's ear at the end of these long tables. That's that's not. Um, not the case. It's, it's never been the case. It's still not the case today. Um, but that has led some some commentators to then turn around, you know, feeling feeling a little too smug, I think, and say, "Oh, this is all a joke," and Dugan is not influential. And that is not true either. It's it's just that his influence is going to be a little bit harder to trace. Uh, one one example of that, um, he authored a book called Foundations of Geopolitics at the end of the 1990s, um, which was geared toward providing. Uh, Primarily strategic advice to to Russia as to how they could counter the global hegemony of the United States and to think holistically about that campaign to not sheerly view it uh, in militaristic terms and and that book became standard reading for a lot of military training in in Russia at least for for about a decade's worth of um, of students uh, many of whom go on to to serve in the Russian military establishment some of them had political careers in the Duma. So how do we quantify that type of influence? Um, it's very, very hard to do that. Even, even following the consumption of the book itself is not going to allow us to, to put any boundaries on, on the level of influence that Dugan has. Uh, I once spoke with a, 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 actually a far-right <laughs> a media propagandist uh, campaigner uh, who said that the most effective way to influence society is if people don't know you're doing it. If your ideas become detached from their sources and simply float out and become part of the discourse, become part of the, the vocabulary, uh, that's that's influence, but we'll never know where it is. That's where Dugan has existed for a long time. Um, the Russian state, nonetheless, has used him. He has had an agenda, a vision for Russia to reassert itself uh, more or less in the boundaries of the old former Soviet uh, Soviet Union on the basis, not, not of sheer power, but, uh, but what he sees as some organic cultural affinity linking together those territories more or less with Russia. And so he's been very supportive of the, of the Russian intervention in Georgia. Um, and, and of course in Ukraine and Russia has amplified him in both of those instances as, as someone pushing for a more aggressive stance. Um, and, that that is a type of influence. He has served as a sort of uh, international ambassador of of sort of mysterious mandate for the Russian state. Never as an official ambassador, but U.S. intelligence, in one case, uh, claimed to connect his uh, activities in Turkey with Vladimir Putin himself, as though Dugan was being sent there in order to provide cultural, intellectual um, justification unification with with Russia. So all of that is taking place. Uh, and I could go on about that. All of that is taking place up until this assassination attempt mm -hmm. um, this past August, which also changed his his status once again uh, in Russia, brought him uh, more more symbolic uh, importance. Uh, it brought him also, I think, more of an audience with uh, not Putin himself, but people around Putin. Um, and and I think we have to conclude from that too that someone who is entirely irrelevant would not become the object of an international fight to interpret an attack on themselves or on, their, or on Dugan's daughter in this case, who was killed um, in a likely attempt to kill Dugan himself this past August 20th. 
So, so that's where we are today. That's a lot of information, but this is a complicated, this is a complicated figure if, if you can't tell from that overview. I wanted to ask you about his current standing and his current role and, and the influence he may or may not have. So you mentioned there the attempted, presumably an attempted assassination on him in, on the outskirts of Moscow in, in August this year. Uh, his daughter was killed. Um, she herself had been something of a commentator, a bit of a kind of um, like a popular face of Duganism in some ways on, on TV and writing articles and so on, a controversial figure in her own right. Um, and it's interesting that you say that he his symbolic importance seems to have increased since that assassination attempt, and he is talking to elements in the Putin regime. I, I wanted to ask you in relation to that, whether that it, it proves that Duganism is being brought on board more by the Putin regime, or if it speaks to an element of desperation in the Putin regime to find some reason and purpose for what they're doing in Ukraine. So what I mean by that is that there are all sorts of reasons that we can talk about for why Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, one of the arguments put forward by many commentators in the West is that this was a Duganist kind of effort to create a powerful new great Russia, a post-Atlanticist world in which Russia would be much more central, would play much more of a, an influential role. That That is Dugin's view, and that was the view that many in the West had. But I always, I thought that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a bit more basic than that. It seemed to be driven by more base political needs rather than any kind of cosmic vision. And it's also been going wrong for Russia quite a lot over the past few months. Uh, the Ukrainians have scored some extraordinary victories. I think things have been proven far more difficult for Russia than it expected. It's lost a huge number of its forces uh, on the Ukrainian battlefield. Is it possible that the bringing on board of uh, Dugin to a certain extent over the past three months since the assassination attempt is more a desperate effort by elements within the Putin regime to find some post-war justification for what they're doing rather than proof that Duganism is central to this whole mission. I, th I think so. Al although I would, I would caution uh, this rather this this latter suggestion that you're offering, I would I would caution listeners to not get too excited about that. Um, if we're talking about a situation in which you you take an act and then after the fact you want to come up with a rationalization for it, welcome to social life. <laughs> I just I think I think that the opposite view, the more idealistic view, where where you have your high ideals practicality be damned and then you you set out in the world and try and implement them i think that that that's yes an, an an idealization um that doesn't that doesn't happen that often we've seen a lot of cases throughout throughout history just in my mind right now i'm thinking of the u.s civil war um where where there, there are multiple dynamics but throughout the course of the war the the narrative about human dignity and, and the abolition of slavery took a larger and larger Role. Um, and that's not to say it was entirely absent from from the from the beginning of the war. It, it definitely was not, but it, it it changed. And that that is, um, I think, what we what we have going on here. It's always been an issue for Putin himself that he hasn't had much of an ideology. Um, he and he's experimented with multiple multiple ideologies, liberalism, Western style liberalism among them. That's one reason I, I, I really have a hard time when I hear 
commentators, principally coming from the right, who say that Putin is some some conservative uh, savior or champion. And it, it seems to me rather that conservatism is just a very, very useful ideological costume to put on for for what is otherwise has always been a state, a sort of secular personalist state uh, trying to uh, trying to assert itself and, and grab power. Um, having said that, you would have to look at Russian society today, and especially the more the more vocal the the branches of society that are being amplified in in state media and kind of state adjacent media, um, Sargrad TV, for example, that very much do wish for some sort of spiritual cultural cause to rally behind. That it's not enough for Russia to simply fight on a global stage under the banner of Russia. That it needs to be for something transcendent, something beyond Russia. And so, and that's been there for a long time. Dugan isn't solely responsible for, for creating that, but I think he's part, he, he's part of the crowd that, that message to Russia in general. And this is where his, his roots in traditionalism, which we, we haven't discussed here, but where they come into play, where he said, okay, if you look at the world today, yes, you see states fighting each other, but what is really taking place is a battle between tradition and modernity, um, between order and chaos between embeddedness and history and complete arrogance and, and disregard for roots and everything that would go with it. And Russia, Russia can lead this effort. We will be the vanguard. We will be on the front lines of a fight for, for tradition. That is our role in history. And that's what, that's what this war is about. Um, th there's been a role for it this whole time. Um, but that, that doesn't, again, it doesn't speak to Dugan's irrelevance. I think that means that he, his ideas are, are, are poised to, to get more endorsement and the fact that he had all of this international attention, the fact that it seems that Ukraine, if we are to believe now U.S. intelligence, that Ukraine sought Dugan out um, and sought to attack him as, as, a, as an emblem of this war, of, of this aggression um, from Russia, that will raise his profile and position him very well to be, to be a voice of this, of this Russian war as spiritual fight, as spiritual conflict. Listening to you there, I was wondering um, how distinctive you think that view really is or, or how unique it is to Dugin, because it, it does seem to me that rail politic across the international community has become a little bit more spiritual in recent decades. I mean, if you think about, for example, some of the so-called humanitarian interventions that were launched in the 1990s um, were very often expressly not about winning territory or um, pursuing the interests of the United States or of the United Kingdom, but were driven by what was referred to as ethics. We had discussions in the UK about an ethical foreign policy where it would be essentially a battle between good and evil, an attempt to save people from evil. And they were almost like spiritual quests in themselves. If you think back to Tony Blair's Chicago doctrine from 1999, I think, where he expressly talked about a post-state world. You know, this is no longer about sovereignty and states in the traditional sense. It's about doing the right thing. It's about intervening uh, where necessary to stop the march of evil. Now, I'm not comparing Tony Blair to Alexander Dugin, and I'm not saying that uh, those conflicts in the 90s are the same as what's happening in Ukraine. There are lots of differences here. But there does seem to be, you talk about that search for a sense of purpose and a desire to 
give one's actions a real sense of meaning, whether it's cosmic or ethical or spiritual. And that does seem to apply not only to modern day Russia, but also to elements of the of the West as well uh, in relation to, I mean, the pre-populist West, the kind of technocratic leaders of the 90s in particular. Absolutely. Very, very good um, and very astute. I think that the where we might want to observe an imbalance in that dynamic, because you're talking about sort of a, a equivalencies and, there, and there's a lot to there between, you know, the search for spiritual meaning in this war versus that of, of previous wars. The, the place where we might spot an imbalance is, is in the DNA of, of liberalism and, and modern liberalism in particular, that it has always refused... I don't, I'm sorry, I have the voices of Tocqueville scholars in the back of my head here. Um, I I think mainstream liberalism as it came into being in the 1900s has always framed itself as universal. It's never really wanted to acknowledge the existence of borders. Its truths are true for everyone and always at all times. This is the end of history um, discourse that that I'm sure your, your listeners are aware of. Surely that has to have some meaning. For it. Surely that has some relationship to global interventionism. Uh, the war in Iraq was not framed simply as a fight over resources, a crude battle over access to oil, right? It was the fate and the destiny of humanity and its, and its, and its desire to become democratic, um, a desire that is true for as much for any human being anywhere um, as it is for another. If, if we put things in those ways, it almost puts an anti-liberal cause at, a, at an ideological disadvantage. Um, you know, in, in a world of, of global conflict, because what is, what is its rationale for intervention, for uh, initiative, let's say, um, you know, and you see traces of that particular conflict with, with Dugan, where in his mind, what is going on is not necessarily the expansion of a Russian state, but is, it is instead the establishment, the reinforcing of a pre-existing border, mm-hmm. um, what happened in Ukraine was not invasion, it was protection. Um, and, and it belongs to a wider universe of meaning in which borders need to be reinforced. That if you reinforce a border, um, a physical political border um, over territory, you will have also in his mind supported the idea that borders between social borders need to exist, between men and women, between ethnicities, between hierarchical within a society. Um, they see the easiest way to understand that is to see how they talk about their enemy force. They think that the expansionism of, of liberalism is insatiable, that it will never accept borders existing anywhere. It will want to eradicate them domestically in terms of egalitarianism and and the erasure of, of various social social borders. And it will do that in geopolitics, international politics as well. And the only way you can actually stop it is by is by asserting uh, starting to assert those those borders someplace. Um, I know I'm, I'm going off, uh, in, in, into some more abstract territory here, but that's to give you some introduction, I think, into the way that, that expansion and conflict can play out and some of the, some of the different questions that you have to grapple with based on, based on what perspective you're coming from. Yeah. I, I have some questions for you about borders and I want to get onto them shortly, particularly through the issue of Sweden, which I want to ask you about as well. But one more question on Russia and Ukraine. It strikes me that there's a little bit of a contradiction on parts of the populist right in relation in relation to the Ukraine conflict, or, or maybe not a contradiction, but certainly a tension. So, 
It was said by some commentators in the West, particularly commentators of a leftish or liberal persuasion, that populist leaders uh, would fall in line behind Russia, would support his war in Ukraine. And that didn't actually turn out to be the case. We saw it with Marine Le Pen. We saw it with Matteo Salvini in Italy. Um, the Sweden Democrats, uh, who we'll talk about in a moment, uh, all these different groups, different movements, different individuals made it pretty clear that they were against this barbaric invasion of a sovereign country by Russia. Um, and that was interesting in itself. But then there is also another thing I've noticed in recent months among what I think we might refer to as the post-COVID right. And by that, I mean a, a, a right elements of the online right, uh, the populist right, I suppose, who I think were driven slightly mad by COVID-19. And uh, as a consequence of that experience, have started to embrace elements of conspiratorial thinking and uh, this idea that the world is beyond our control and there are powerful actors who are injecting us with vaccines and running our lives. And for those kinds of people, something interesting and worrying has happened, which is that they folded the Ukraine conflict into that narrative. So they see Zelensky as a puppet of the WEF. They see him as, uh, an, of course, he was an actor, and they see him still as an actor performing a role. Is the conflict even real? Are the dead people on the streets that we see in these photos, are they actors as well? It wouldn't really be worth talking about this kind of thing, except for the fact that it is becoming kind of influential in certain online circles. And out of it has come this extraordinary hostility to Ukraine, um, which is seen as a, a uniquely corrupt nation. Its war is pointless. We shouldn't be giving them any money. We shouldn't be giving them any guns. It's a, 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 and the most uh, horrendous things are said about that country and about uh, uh, Zelensky by elements of the online post-COVID right. Have you noticed that? And, and if there is a tension between parts of the populist right, which now uh, clearly oppose Russia, and other parts of the online right who have become obsessed with the evil of modern-day Ukraine, what do you think is likely to win out in, that, in those circles in terms of those two visions? Oh, gosh. There's, there's so much to say here. I, I need to preface this, too. Brennan was saying, I mean, what you were asking me to speak about before is, is kind of my, my day job. Um, I'm used to speaking about it more dispassionately. I'm rather worked up about the Ukraine conflict. It's occupied a lot of my personal and, and professional life since it, since it happened. Um, first, to the, to the question of, of the state of affairs and the populist right, an additional curiosity about this. Uh, it, we would expect um, that the more extreme you get in the populist right, and, and there is, there's, a, there's a wide range from Nigel Farage, let's say, to Golden Dawn in Greece. Those, that's a massive difference. And yet a lot of commentary groups them all together. One might expect that the further to the right you get in that world, the more pro-Putin it becomes. And what, is, what has been interesting to me is that that is not the case. Um, you have the government in Poland, for example, not shrieking violence by any means, pretty, pretty um, hardline cultural conservatives rabidly anti-Putin, right? Same things can be said in, in parts of Romania, in, uh, in Estonia, Latvia. Um, Sweden is a difficult case um, to, to map there, but there too you also had resolute, not, not an ounce of hesitation from the party leadership of the Sweden Democrats and where they stood on this. And on the other hand, where, where do you see some apologetics coming from? Well, from Gert Wildes, uh, you know, the Dutch, the Dutch Freedom Party, which is 
yes, populist right, but we, what some might call liberal chauvinism. That's a little bit of a loaded term, but uh, these are people who oppose immigration, multiculturalism, ostensibly on the grounds that they pose a threat to liberal values. These are people who exist on the, on the more left-leaning side of, of the international populist right. And that's where we've heard uh, uh, some of the conspiracy theories come out, retweeting of, of Russian embassy talking points and things like that. So what, what is taking over in this conflict with Russia actually is national identity rather than political ideology. That's what we've seen when we look at the map of, of Europe. Now, as for the conflict itself, another reason why it might be hard for, for these forces to, to have a unified position on it is that I, you can read it in different ways. You can look at the conflict in Ukraine as, as yes, an opposition between imperialism and nationalism, but you can go both ways with that. Um, I don't. I have my own take on which one is is, is clearer, but it, that doesn't mean anything. People people say, okay, well, it's the U.S., it's NATO that's actually expanding itself against Russian sovereignty. You can also uh, the view that I endorse more is that you have NATO international Western powers aligning with a localized campaign for sovereignty against an alternative imperialism, which is coming from Russia. Um, and so you kind of have three actors there overlapping. Um, that that confusion can can lead to a lot of a lot of different positions. The other the other issue, though, is that no one can really deny what is happening on the ground and what Russia is attempted to do. And what we've heard from some of the some of the sectors that you've mentioned, and not even just these these kind of underground online, but let's say Tucker Carlson who's going to be have much, much wider appeal, I think, normally in, in, in more populist-leaning circles, is this stuff like about the biolabs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get, you get to the, or, you know, bringing on expert commentators of really questionable insight who have been saying that the battlefield is going, you know, the fights on the ground are going in an entirely different direction than, than they went. Um, and it's, I think that there may be a problem a sort of cultural identity problem in some of these sectors to be in broad agreement with the mass of society. Yeah. Um, this is not to take a shot at you. You're a media, a media commentator, Brenna, but I, but I, I think conflict and disagreement is really good for opinion journalism. Um, and in the United States, our, our recent opinion polls, it's been remarkably uh, static here. Seven of 10 Americans support our government supporting Ukraine and sending, sending funding and weapons to them. Um, there's different polling based on, you know, there's a different divide based on whether or not we should be pushing them more to negotiate or not. But in terms of, of sending support, seven of 10, I don't know that seven of 10 Americans agree on anything. And that's really bad for, for certain brands of opinion journalism to have that much agreement. So when I see these, when I see the wildness of some of these theories, um, the, the bio labs, all this other stuff, it's like, well, okay, but it, it turns out you probably need the bio labs or you need the, the, you know, the, the stuffed cadavers in Russian army, uh, you know, being organized out for TVs, uh, you know, for TV crews to film and spread this false narrative. All this conspiracism is there because the facts on the ground are, are pretty, pretty overwhelming and, and have pretty wide endorsement. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. 
that's uh, very well put. And um, I think you're right to say that it can be seen in different ways. There is there is the possibility of seeing the conflict in different ways. And uh, my take is the same as yours. I, I think it's the same as yours. I see it as an act of Russian imperialism. Uh, and I think it's an abomination, actually. And it's an assault on a sovereign nation, which is ought to be intolerable to anyone who believes in uh, national freedom or freedom more generally. Um, I think it's right that, you know, I spiked was very critical of some of the things that NATO has been doing over the past few decades in terms of reaching right up to Russia's borders. And we're not the only ones who are critical of that old Cold War right wingers, including Margaret Thatcher herself, thought it was pretty unwise for NATO to go so close to uh, Russia. Uh, that was a fairly mainstream criticism to make. But my view has always been that as soon as Russia made its conscious decision to invade this country, then this was a Russian war. And I think some of the critique which says that this is NATO's fault fundamentally, it's, it's very Western-centric, where everything is our doing. Russia is the kind of child that's just lashing out helplessly against the evil outsiders. And it's a, it's a, that Western-centric view actually contains a kind of almost like a neo, an ironically neo-colonial undertone where we're the adults on the world stage and everyone else are, is the children. Oh, and there, there are two aspects to it. A lot of this has been, I think, being discussed right now after a recent interview with, with the famous realist uh, Mearsheimer. But, I mean, there are two aspects to the, to, the, to the problem of that. One of them is moral that you talked about, is that it, it's pretty patronizing to say we get to decide what people in Ukraine and Zaporizhia and Kherson want to, want to do with their lives. But I think the moral outrage is less um, less significant than the strategic stupidity of, yeah. of, of that is to say, the strategic stupidity of, of dismissing, of not concerning yourself with what the people themselves actually think there. Um, because the, the fact that Ukrainians seem to not want to be part of Russia, not all of them, of course, but but it seems a critical mass. The fact that Zelensky was so committed to, to Ukrainian nationalism, his flaws, and he is a very flawed person and president, no doubt. But the fact that he did that, um, it had strategic consequences for Russia. And and we're seeing that play out now. It, it mattered. So, so the, the moral outrage is there, but the real silver bullet to those old realists is is the strategic oversight. You can't just um, just completely look past what the people on the ground are going to do because it will prevent these big, powerful state actors from doing what they want to do with them. Absolutely. Okay, Ben, a couple more questions. I shouldn't really have left this to the end of the podcast, but there you go. I want to ask you about Sweden. You know a lot about Sweden. Um, you've written a lot about Sweden. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about Sweden. Uh, one is about the politics of it, and and the second one is is just to bring it back to the question of borders, which you've already raised, which I think is an incredibly important question of our time. Uh, but on on the Sweden Democrats, so we had the uh, elections in Sweden a couple of months ago. The Sweden Democrats did very well. There was a huge amount of shock uh, across much of the Western commentariat. People were using words like earthquake and uh, unprecedented upset that this was the kind of language people were using. And I think that's because there has been a tendency among Western liberals in particular to look at Sweden as this social democratic paradise 
the perfect country. I mean, the way Guardian columnists in particular here in the UK talk about Sweden, it's their dreamland. And I always wonder why they don't just move there if they hate Britain so much and love Sweden so much. Um, So it took people by surprise, but it's not necessarily justified, is it, that it took them by surprise? Because there have been rumblings in Sweden for a while. You've written about the rise of Nordic nationalism over the past few years. Uh, It has been a fairly long time coming, hasn't it? The the fact that the, the populist reckoning has even arrived in Sweden, that has actually been coming for some time. I think we would say that it was late. And, and the indicators of its potential have been there for, for a long time. And by that, I mean, we've, we've had opinion data for decades showing that public sentiment in favor of not just immigration, but, but state multiculturalism, which Sweden has in, in, a, in a fairly pronounced um, fashion, for, uh, there's, there's been a large section of society that's been critical of it for a long time. And thus, that a, a political party that came along and voiced that that perspective would have would have really good chances. And indeed, the, the Sweden Democrats were, um, especially in the the, the first periods uh, from let's say 2010 until 2018, they were the fastest growing political party in in Swedish modern history. Um, why they didn't grow faster, I think, has to do with the party itself. We spoke earlier about a, a sort of map, a sort of spectrum of, of extremism within the, the populist right. And the Sweden Democrats are kind of illegible on that, uh, on that spectrum. On the one hand, they have roots in oppositional youth far-right subculture, skinheads. You see the traces of that today in the fact that a lot of its leaders are men in their, in their mid to upper 40s. That is to say, men who were teenagers during the 1990s, which is when that subculture was at its height, and they were they were either involved in it or or on the on the edges of it. And and Swedish public society knows that they've grown up seeing this party more in the way I think Brits would have seen uh, the National Front, let's say, or the BNP. It's the, it's that sort of kind of demographic rather than Nigel Farage, let's say. Um, and yet the Sweden Democrats in terms of their policy are much, much more moderate than, than many of the parties, let's say, than, than more moderate than Fidesz in Hungary. So uh, it, it, they've had this potential, but they've been, they've been hampered by their, by their style, by their ambassadors, by, um, by their history, too. Um, but it's, it's, it's always been coming. And what we've seen, the reason this should not be a surprise is since that party came in, with 5.7% of the vote in 2000, 2010, they have just gradually been growing. And as they've been growing, it's not just that they they themselves have gotten a larger and larger share of the vote, although that's happened too, but the rest of Sweden's political spectrum has moved and transformed in ways that that was a shock is how quickly that has been happening. It shouldn't, what happened you know, in the last election shouldn't surprise anybody, but attitudes toward immigration, attitude toward uh, public religion, Islam, multiculturalism, feminism, um, nuclear energy—all of that has transformed. It has gone. It's it's occurred with parties across the political spectrum to such an extent that uh, I think in 2018, when the party had a, a somewhat lackluster performance relative to expectations, what people were missing was the fact that there, though the party had not gotten such a large share of the vote, their ideas were being assimilated by everybody, including the Social Democrats, the main center-left party. So their their politics were winning and have been winning for, for a long time. Um, where it's going, the one thing that I think that could stop them uh, or, or hinder their growth is, is leadership 
and responsibility for, for actual decisions. And they're in this strange place today where they are not part of the government, but they are its key guarantor, and they are a larger party than any of the parties sitting in the actual um, coalition government right now. And so that could mean that they will be punished for any, any unpleasant outcomes um, or, or situations in public political life. Could also mean that they're in a golden position to support and grow their position without actually having to take responsibility for it. So, so it, it's a very dynamic situation. I've been to Sweden quite a few times over the past few years, and I've always been struck by almost a a disconnectedness between political life, which was moving along, uh, I'm talking about five, six, seven years ago, political life, which was moving along in the pretty normal expected way, and a general tone of discussion or a general tone of displeasure. There seemed to be a real disconnect between uh, uh, political life and public sensibility or public disquire. And I noticed that, and it seems to me that the, see, I, I thought that the, the rise of the Sweden Democrats seemed fairly logical as an effort by certain sections of the electorate to push uh, certain ideas onto the agenda or to force a focus on certain problems. And I wanted to ask you to what extent the developments in Sweden come from the 2015 migrant crisis. Now, of course, there is a real danger of focusing too much on that or solely on that. And some right-wing commentators do. They think the Sweden Democrats' rise is entirely down to the fact that Sweden took on a huge number of migrants during the migrant crisis, failed to integrate them particularly well. And as a consequence of that, there have been problems to do with social unrest, uh, crime. We've seen riots involving uh, Muslim youths who are uh, who were offended by people who are disrespectful of their religion. Uh, very serious problems that any democratic society would want to deal with. Um, did the 2015 migrant crisis make a large contribution to these changes? And was it more broadly about the question of borders and the question of national integrity. One thing I discovered talking to Swedish friends of mine is that these are not racist people. They're not against the migrants who've come to their country, but they were concerned about a sense of porousness or a sense that um, if you can have huge movements of people across Europe through European countries, it does raise the question of who controls borders uh, whether borders should be controlled, whether people who live within borders should have some say over what happens at those borders. Those are the kinds of questions I've seen people asking. And do you think that has had an impact on how politics has changed in Sweden in recent years? It, it could have had a bigger impact. Let me go back, though. It, the A lot Swedish nationalism and, and national identity it doesn't often traffic in the kind of folkloric tropes that we might you know, you might expect it to. Instead, it's often tied to the functioning of the welfare state, mm-hmm. right? And that's, and that's a source of pride for the country is, is you know, the Swedish system. Well, in Sweden, they have a system for that. Um, and I, I think that the the real threat where things really became urgent for, for average Swedes was when the migrant crisis, not, not when it was let's say attacking their, their notion of, of kind of Christian white identity or anything like that. It had much more to do with the functioning of, of the welfare state. When reports were coming in that migrants were, were not even accounted for, were not known, um, when the healthcare system was overburdened, when school systems were overburdened, when, you know, when 
educating holding class uh, became impossible because of the number of of languages that were being spoken by the, by the students. That got people's attention, um, and it could have been a very very powerful motivating force in politics were it not for the fact, as I was mentioning earlier, that the mainstream, the ruling parties at that time, the Social Democrats and the Green Party in particular, uh, changed their position, moved to to enforce border controls in ways that they hadn't before, did did an essential U-turn on a lot of their their rhetoric relating to to migration. Um, and border control, and, and a potential conflict between the functioning of the welfare state and immigration. They they would not entertain that 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 possibility prior to that point. But all of a sudden, um, it, in a, the turn of a day, it was really quite dramatic. Uh, they suddenly were, and and especially for the social democrats, they never really looked back from that point forward. Um, entertaining the possibility of a conflict between immigration and the welfare state is now part of their palette of of rhetorical um, colors that they can use. Uh, so had they not done that, I think it would have been, I, I think you would have seen a much faster transition to, to the political model that we're in today. But you asked if, 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 if we're not giving too much importance to the 2015, um, refugee crisis, I think we, we could be, and I, it, it's easy for people to overlook the fact that in Sweden, in let's say 2008, uh, 2006, you were talking about a country with a political spectrum that was compared to inter- other international political systems, very, very narrow. Um, you had a center right and a center left party that were essentially each fighting over the politics of the center left and who would be a better guarantor for them and who would be better at implementing the center left's politics. Um, there, there's very, very little social conservatism, uh, cultural conservatism in Sweden. And so you have to think even though different national populations have different tendencies, that there there has to be a large portion of that society that didn't feel that it had a voice in politics whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it very easy for for a party like this to, to come in and, and swoop, swoop in. An- another takeaway from this, if, if I can just add one thing, um, is when the Sweden Democrats came in, uh, in, in 2010, the strategy by the media and by their main mainstream opponents was to just hammer down relentlessly on the party's past, which was in what I would call organized white nationalism. And to say over and over again, okay, Nazis, Nazis, fascist, 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 um, with the belief that if that if those labels were applied forcefully enough, um, that it would kill the party. And it there as well, as well as in the United States, no one remembers Hillary's alt-right speech in Reno, Nevada to Trump supporters. Um, it, it didn't work. It doesn't work. Uh, people don't like it. I don't think it moves a single solitary soul to, to be describing these forces in that way. Voters ended up being much more moved based on actual policy proposals, what was happening on the ground and what this party wanted to do about it. That neatly brings me on to the, the last question I want to ask you. I, I wish we could talk more about Sweden. Maybe we can do that in a, a future podcast. But you mentioned, I think you're absolutely right, that the use of that kind of terminology to describe populist right movements is incredibly unhelpful. So I've seen the Sweden Democrats being just very casually referred to as neo-Nazis. Georgia Maloney in Italy is frequently referred to as a fascist or far right. Um given some of the history of her party, but it it seems to contradict her policies, which seem 
pretty sensible in some ways, disagreeable in other ways, and people are clearly drawn to the policies. Um, yeah, and you see that repeated again and again, the description of these movements as, as fascistic and, and this idea that the people who vote for them must be at least semi-fascistic as well, in the words of Joe Biden. My final question then is, in relation to these various different movements, they're very, very different one thing they have in common is the idea of the nation and is the idea of moving beyond the trends towards globalization uh, that we've seen over the past few decades. The vote for Brexit, for example, I was a, I'm was a very proud voter for Brexit, um, was definitely about restoring a sense of national sovereignty, refusing to allow distant institutions to impose laws on us without our direct democratic control. So the question comes back very often to the nation and to the question of borders. Borders feel like they are are, are currently under attack by a new technocratic regime which fancies itself as post-borders, borderless, the kind of anywheres, as David Goodhart has referred to them. And you see left-wing movements now who will march through the streets with banners saying, borders equal death. I mean, that is one of the phrases that they use. That is how hostile they are to borders. But isn't the restoration of borders a potentially positive idea in the sense that it allows us to understand who belongs to a nation, who is a citizen, what democracy means. You can't really understand those things if we don't know where the borders are and and who is allowed to cross those borders and who isn't. Bringing borders back into public life would not necessarily be a bad thing, would it? Yeah, to, to the extent if someone were to ask me, okay, well, what is good about borders? I would land in a discussion of sovereignty. You know, yes, nation states can be sprawling. Yes, they were oftentimes created with violence. I don't know if that if that is the logic behind the banner phrase you were you were referring to. Um, but today, the way that they exist is that they they are they are bounded off areas in which, um, in many places, theoretically, they delineate a, a territory over which a local population should have have some dominion. Uh, I think that's I think that's important. It, the The alternative is it's rarely spelled out in that particular way to say, that, okay, we're going to create this global this global world, and the technocratic necessity of that is 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 seldom presented to 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 average citizens to say that uh, how are we going to make this work? Well, the good people will be in charge, All right? And suddenly we sound like Berlusconi and Putin and Trump and, and all these authoritarian forces, anti democratic forces. That that seems that that's the unspoken destiny and conclusion of of that way of thinking. So so in that respect, I, I I do see I do see something something necessary and something potentially good with borders. It's it's always a matter though of of balancing that, um, of finding a way to uh, to I think to to keep dignity, freedom uh, alive with with borders. It's it's keeping that balance alive and recognizing that they can come into conflict with with one another. That's that's part of the challenge for today. But to see borders vanquished completely, um, with with no thought for the morrow, I, I, is is a dangerous thing. And you expect various anti movements to rise up against that, and you do not get to choose which movements they will be. Ben, thank you very much. A pleasure to be with you, Brennan.
Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.